welcome to The Shipping Exchange, a brand new podcast that aims to explore the latest developments in the maritime industry, brought to you by the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and Maritime London, and presented by me, Graham Fisher. In today's episode, we're looking at piracy and corruption. Maritime piracy affects major shipping lanes and puts the lives of seafarers from all over the world at risk. In recent years, the total number of incidents has continued to fall. However, piracy is shifting away from East Africa and moving to new, dangerous areas including the West of Africa and Asia. Furthermore, with the advent of globalisation, there has been a surge in global trade, and the very nature of import and export invariably involves considerable interaction with government officers of a given country. However, many of these emerging countries lack transparency, and that makes the movement of goods into and out of those countries time-consuming, burdensome and costly. The United Nations estimates that corruption can add up to 10% more to the cost of doing business internationally, and a recent study by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development found that the transport and storage industry is tied second as the industry where the most bribes are paid. In this episode, we will look at what is driving the shift in piracy, what can be done to reduce corruption in the industry, and what is the impact of both piracy and corruption on maritime trade. I'm joined today by three guests. Steve Smith from the UK Government Maritime Trade Operations, Mark Gray MBE, Managing Director of MNG Maritime, and joining us remotely is Nicholas Fisher, CEO of Hazelden Consulting. So Mark, what would you say is the the definition of of piracy? Piracy is the uh, act of violence against ships outside the territorial waters uh, of a state on the high seas. Normally involves taking or capturing the ship but could include robbing the crew or removing things from the from the vessel. Why why is it that piracy is, is, is a crime that individuals around the world will, will choose to commit? Is it is it social socioeconomic? Is it political in the countries that they're from? Is it is it because of legislation or how they've perhaps been treated in terms of fisheries and things like that? Well, the the, the high seas are a largely ungoverned space, uh, and it presents an opportunity for people. Um, to exploit. It's, it's as simple as that. There'll always be people who want to thieve and rob and hijack and kill and ransom and uh, the high seas just pre- presents a great open space where that opportunity is there. It's important to add that piracy is not a new phenomenon. It's as old as man going to sea essentially. Uh, one, one man preying on another. Over the centuries regulation has, has, has come into play to try and reduce and regulate those ungoverned spaces, but actually vast areas of the world are covered by the sea and they're outside territorial waters and therefore beyond the natural jurisdiction of states. So Nick, what would you say the risks are of piracy, both to the maritime industry, the world economies? Well, actually, there's, there's the risk to, uh, to the cargo, there's the risk to the vessel, and most importantly, there's the risk to the group. Um, and we see instances of, of kidnap, we see instances of murder, praise upon uh, the ability to conduct right of innocent passage, and uh, and in some cases it, it's done um, fully in the knowledge with with people on the inside, and we see that particularly with, with armed robbery and and acts of piracy in in the um, Southeast Asia region, um, Singapore, Indonesia. So, Steve, who who's responsible for dealing with the problems that piracy? Presents is it is it governments, militaries, is it ship owners? It, the, the, there's no sim- simple panacea to this. The, it, there's an international responsibility. Uh, governments, industry has a part to play, uh, and various individual companies have a part to play in this. And they need to work collegiately together. No one organisation, no one country, no one company can combat 
global piracy or the, those issues on the sea. So a recent report from 2017 shows that there were 180 incidents of piracy and armed robbery reported, and that included mostly vessels being boarded for either theft, hijackings, attempted attacks, and vessels that were fired upon. What do you think is, has led to this reduction in, in the number of incidences taking place? Because it's the lowest level since 1995. I think there, there are uh, multiple factors involved in this, and, and I think it depends in which region we're describing, because no two regions are identical. There is a much better international cooperation to try and suppress piracy. There is much better understanding amongst industry how to organise itself and to make itself more robust against the shock of piracy and theft upon the sea. Uh, and there is um, the setting up of regional centres who coordinate activity to provide that suppression. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I would agree with that. I think uh, in the Indian Ocean particularly, they have what is called the, the three-legged stool. You have, on the one hand, best management practice, which is a, a set of guidelines to reduce and minimise the risk uh, that pirates might get on board your ship. For example, guidelines about routing, about speed, about barriers and other protective measures you might put on the ship to deter pirates from boarding. You have uh, a number of coalitions operate in the Indian Ocean area. Um, you have the EU Nav 4 force, which operates a number of warships. And finally, the third leg of the stool is private maritime security, contracted by the ship owners to provide an armed presence on a ship to deter a pirate from attacking. Mm. Uh, the combination of the three of those has been extremely effective in the last eight years in bringing down the incidence of piracy in the Indian Ocean. If, if I can add to that as well, I think there are two subparts that, that blend into that. There are a lot of independent deployers, the various nations outside of the traditional NATO boundaries, the Indian Navy, Chinese Navy, Korean Navy, Singaporean Navy, many, many governments are now sending their forces to, to add to that uh, coalition activity. But there's also the, the legal finish. One of the issues at the very beginning of the, the outbreak of piracy, or when piracy was, was rampant uh, sort of between 2008 to 2011, was the lack of the ability to take those culprits of those activities and take them into the legal finish and imprison them and to remove them from the playing board. That has happened had a significant effect alongside all those other measures you've just heard. Well, I think you talked about, you know, the causes of piracy, and it, it, it's well known that in the peak of the Somalian piracy period that uh, a lot of these ventures were being backed by foreign investment and that $50,000 would be what it would take to mount a piracy campaign uh, and send the, the teams off to, to go and come back with the ship uh, and give a, a, a huge return if, if they were successful in 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 achieving a, a kidnap and a ransom being paid. Um, so you almost had uh, a structural business model for funding piracy on the one hand and then a, a, an industry that has sprung up to, to combat that. I think when individuals think of piracy, whether you're in the industry or you're not, you will link it immediately to areas such as Somalia or major dramatisations such as uh, Captain Phillips. But we've seen over, particularly in recent months, the shift in where piracy incidents are being reported is moving away from those regions. And in the first quarter of 2018, 40% of piracy took place in the Gulf of Guinea, which is you know, a long stretch away from Somalia. What is it that is making piracy shift? I'm, I'm not sure it, it, it's shifting per se. 
I think there is a industry is is better prepared. They've learnt a lot from the Indian Ocean experience and other theatres, but but essentially the reporting of incidents is now fairly robust. Industry knows how to report things and generally has a view that if I report something, something might be able to be done about it. So whether that piracy was going on before those criminal acts, and there is a, there is a real issue between what is piracy and what is a criminal act, were there levels of under-reporting before, or are we now seeing more realistic levels of reporting that reflect true activity? So when you, when you talk about like, what we can learn, can we transfer the, the coalition response that we've put in the Indian Ocean and put that in the west of, um, west of Guinea, in the Gulf of Guinea? In reality, every area has its own natural characteristics uh, and it's driven by the politics and the economies in those regions and, and, and we can we can see that very clearly from the Indian Ocean experience particularly the Somali experience. I think many of the lessons we've learned working in, co- in coalition with other organizations other governments can be taken into the Gulf of Guinea and other areas. There has to be a significant involvement by those countries present in those areas as well. They're part of the solution. Industry has learned a lot from the the Indian Ocean, and is applying many of those measures to how it operates, particularly in the Gulf of Guinea. Is, is it worth going one step further than just the piracy uh, prevention, anti-piracy roles which we are taking on the high seas and looking perhaps more deeply into the situation, such as the, maybe the political instability or the economic instability in countries such as Somalia? Can we be doing more at a, a direct level to improve the livelihood of individuals so that they they don't feel like they have to turn to a life of piracy? Well, I think that, uh, you know, in the oft-used phrase, you don't solve piracy in Somalia until you solve the problem on land, which I think is quite a facile statement. Nigeria has been uh, an independent state for, you know, 70, 80 years. Uh, The rule of law applies, yet they seem to be unable to solve the problem of, of piracy off their shores. So, you know, just because... We bring democracy and the rule of law to Somalia won't necessarily mean that it disappears. The opportunity is presented by the geography, not necessarily or totally by the socio-economic conditions. In the Gulf of Guinea, um, it's a much more complex and very different issue. Uh, and I think Nick probably has some um, had some comments to make about corruption there, because a lot of the piracy is 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 part of the problem. Is 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 governmental officials who are involved in the piracy, uh, and uh, they have little incentive to try and uh, eliminate it because a lot of them are making a lot of money from it. No, I think I think that's absolutely right, and it's where the where the the, the legislative structure, the the authorities themselves. Uh, lack guidance. They they um, they have, shall we say, a freedom to operate uh, with the uniform that they wear, and, and no one can hold them to task, uh, and they can get away with with these things um, on a daily basis. So, is it worth looking at going straight to the government and saying, "Let's join a coalition similar to we have in uh, Somalia"? Well, it's a slightly different situation because Nigeria has an armed force of of its own. So, you know, in the first instance, you would always try to use that local force. One of the issues is that the leadership that sits at the top of the use of that um, that force has a tendency to corruption itself and uh, is part of the problem as well as potentially being part of the solution. We contribute uh, to the training of the Nigerian Navy. We're, we're chipping away at that uh, uh, along with many other coalition partners 
and need to keep doing so but uh, you know it's it's not as simple as just improving the capability difficulties political acceptability and sovereignty then yes but because the the corruption is so entrenched within the structure it won't be resolved overnight i don't necessarily disagree with what i've heard but it is very clear that western governments and others are investing time effort uh, and resource in helping those regional navies those regional governments the uk and particularly alongside France, are working closely with them to try and help them become more robust in managing their own territorial waters and their own EEZs. Because after all, the solution must ultimately be regionally based. It's right and proper that we help them, and we are involved today, but also it's right and proper that actually they come to the fore in due course. So we mentioned about EEZ, so exactly what is an EEZ and why is it a threat and a link to piracy? It comes down to essentially uh, international maritime law and, and who is responsible for the governance in particular regions of the oceans. So the territorial waters, which typically extend 12 miles beyond the coastline of most nation states, is essentially regarded as sovereign territory for that nation. There is an area which extends from the coastline out to generally 200 nautical miles, but essentially that's known as the exclusive economic zone by which that nation-state, which has the authority to exercise rules and regulations over that area, is, is able to use the resource in the sea and on the seabed and above it. But it's still part of the high seas, which we heard from the very beginning. So there is a... a a way of managing that that sea space. So the law, the law is there already, though, and is it just a, a case of misinterpretation or abuse of? Well, I, I think we've just got to be clear here because the EEZ is the high seas. Right. Mm. There is no jurisdiction for the coastal state within the EEZ. What uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea gives the coastal state is the exclusive right to exploit mineral and animal resources within the EEZ solely and to police that exploitation so they can prevent other states coming and, for example, nicking their fish or their oil. Uh, But nothing more than that. They have no legal jurisdiction. They have no right to prosecute for crimes. Piracy is slightly different. Piracy is covered in in a couple of clauses, but it gives everybody the right to police piracy. So, Nick, are we we seeing anywhere else in the world other than the Indian Ocean and uh, west coast of Africa where piracy is becoming an issue? Um, yes, indeed. Around um, the Philippines, uh, there's been a number of issues. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, Southeast Asia. Um, we talked earlier on about the difference between the definition of piracy and, and armed robbery. So when it's in national waters, the same act of, of holding somebody um, to ransom with, with a weapon is armed robbery, but the same act in, in international waters is is considered piracy. Abu Sayyaf in, uh, in the Philippines has been uh, really quite active uh, recently. So you think that the drivers there are different, one being Abu Sayyaf in terrorism and the others being committing crime for gain of money or personal gain? Uh, I think that there's an important distinction as well to make between uh, the terrorism perpetrated by groups such as Abu Sayyaf uh, and pirates because... Terrorism is a very different crime, requiring a different solution. In the case of piracy, if a ship is pirated and uh, hijacked and the crew are held to ransom, while we all may have a view on the desirability of paying ransoms and how it uh, encourages further activity, paying a ransom is not illegal. In the case of terrorism, 
paying a ransom to terrorists is considered to be funding terrorism and is illegal, certainly in the EU and in the US, uh, which should make ship owners aware that if they're operating in an area where terrorism is rife, such as in the Philippine area, the recourse to paying a ransom to save their crews may not be open to them. Therefore, uh, that should form a part of their risk assessment when sailing through those areas. So Steve, the piracy and the locations where it takes place, it's a local issue, it's a local danger to those areas, but it's an international front which we need to be united in against it. What more can international governments do um, or learn to tackle these local issues of piracy and terrorism as well? Like many complex problems, and this is a complex problem, there's, there's no uh, easy panacea for it all, but I think it's, it's much closer cooperation of governments, much closer cooperation of international bodies responsible for law and order. It's better cooperation of maritime reporting centres. Industry, through its uh, industry bodies, needs uh, to continue to look at how it makes its risk assessments. It needs to know how it prepares its ships and its crews for voyages in hazardous areas. And where possible, timely reporting. I can't stress that enough. Vessels, masters, company security officers make reports of incidents they've encountered. The more likely it is that something can be done about that particular incident and therefore hopefully put pressure on the perpetrators. Reporting 12 hours after the fact doesn't help anybody. It merely provides a statistic. We spoke earlier about people who sell information from the inside about where the vessel's going to be, what cargo is going to be carrying, and it also links obviously to the corruption side of it. How can how can we tackle that as as, as a community, as a maritime community? Well, I think it comes down to uh, to um, whistleblower uh, mechanisms within organisations and how people are feel free to to use these structures and report things that they see that that are going uh, awry and against company policy. Um, but often people feel that if they say something that they will be held held to account uh, as a result of that and, and feel unwilling to do so, and these things go unchecked. Um, you, you see cases in, in Singapore where people have been defrauding uh, Shell and, and stealing um, bunkers for, for years, and this is known about by a large group of people, and no one, no one wanted to say anything. So when we refer to the UK's Trade Information Centre, which you mentioned, Steve, what is the role of information and intelligence gathering in tackling piracy? The first thing I would stress here, uh, particularly for the audience, is the Maritime Trade Information Centre does not do intelligence. Uh, and we're very careful with that uh, because our, the, our success depends on industry's trust in the way that we manage the information that they volunteer to us. There is no international law that says they shall, must or will give us their information. But hopefully the trust in, in the brand of that organisation shows that when industry gives us information, we handle it very sensitively, we pass it to only those who can do or respond to an incident, and, and therefore we keep the rest of the data safe. We are as much a friend of the large ship owner as we are the single ship operator. What's the difference then between information and intelligence then? Intelligence tends to lie with the overt militaries and law enforcement. It's a way of taking previous information. It may well be taking information provided by a discrete source uh, in advance of an activity, and then those military and law enforcement can operate 
to, to try and uh, ameliorate that particular threat. Centres like MDAC-GOG in the Gulf of Guinea and UKMTO and MSC HOA in, in particular in the Indian Ocean tend to operate in the here and now and provide timely and accurate warning to ships uh, and company security officers. So our job is to broadcast the immediacy of, of threats that are developing here and now and reported threats to ourselves. When we look at the statistics and the nature of piracy and what individuals are doing on board vessels, a lot of it is armed robbery and theft of equipment, etc. But are we perhaps looking at, particularly with the advent of new technologies, a larger disaster waiting to happen? Are, are we perhaps encroaching onto a new area or, or a new risk of piracy in a completely different nature than what it is today? Just a, a technical definition. Piracy are those acts that take place outside the territorial waters of a state. The goal of piracy can be very different and differs from place to place. In the Malacca Straits, a lot of the anchorages around Singapore, Malaysia, uh, a lot of it is is what we might call low level. It's only low level if it doesn't happen to you, but uh, low level, just go on a ship, nick some computers and a wad of cash from the safe and leave. In Somalia, the model, the model initially was to seize ships for their cargo and hold the cargoes to ransom, but Somali pirates found very quickly that uh, to, to most ship owners, the cargo the cargoes held no value because they were insured and they'd be reimbursed, but the value was in the crew. Ransoming the crew was, was the lucrative uh, goal there. Off Nigeria, a good deal of, of the piracy that happens off Nigeria is to, is to seize the cargo. Although of late, uh, they too have been kidnapping for ransom. That's where the money is. All of these techniques could be used piracy, armed robbery by terrorists to fund their activity and might be uh, where they aim to go. But, you know, that is a, a slightly different uh, direction. I, I, I would agree with, with quite a lot was said there. Um, I think you need to understand where that illegal act took place. And if we refer to them as illegal acts, perhaps in this, it helps understand it. Quite often we see uh, in, in anchorages uh, in the Far East uh, and also in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, or in harbours or uh, offshore installations, we'll see opportunist theft. Somebody sneaks on board and he steals some paint, he steals some rope. If they're a bit more organised and, and a bit more brazen, a small group might go aboard in those particular locations with weapons, normally sort of machete-style weapons, and that theft then becomes robbery because there's the, the menace and the violence potential. The boarding of vessels at sea in whichever area we talk about, there is a much more sophisticated modus operandi being taken place. Because if I, if somebody wants to take a vessel, what am I going to do with it now? Somali model was, was relatively clear. We'd take the vessel back into an ungoverned space, and then we'd go into the, the ransom model for crew, cargo, and vessel. But it was it was regarded as more of a business model. In the Gulf of Guinea, there was, about two and a half years ago, a fairly large operation of cross-bunkering. Small vessels coming out, once a, vessel, a large vessel had taken, the crude offloaded and taken away. So what we have seen more of in the last two years is a boarding to look at taking members of the crew off and holding them as individuals for ransom. You have to look at the regions, you have to look at what those groups are trying to achieve. Is it piracy? Is it organised crime? Is there a, a nexus at some stage to terrorism, and, and, and uh, uh, that's that's one to ponder. So as a final point then for piracy, Mark, what, do you believe in the value of having armed guards on board 
Is it an, a, a valid deterrent? Well, it's been effective. No ship has, uh, has yet been taken in the Indian Ocean, which has got armed guards on board. I think uh, there is a general feeling that piracy um, ha- has been defeated and there may no longer be a requirement for armed guards. I, I wouldn't subscribe to that view. Uh, if you have incidents of speeding by a school and you put speed cameras up, it stops people speeding. It's very effective in doing that, but nobody suggests that the speed cameras are taken away a week later. And an incident, even as as recent as last month, in the Somali Basin shows that every so often they will have a, a prod and a probe to see how effective the, the, the defences are, whether armed guards are still on every ship, and should, heaven forbid, a, a ship get captured, um, I, I think um, the, the youth of Somalia would flood back to piracy in Harpy. So what about the legalities then around having armed guards on board? It seems to be quite a grey area. I think that um, you, you know the maritime, armed maritime security market has improved dramatically in the last eight years. Um, when armed guards were first placed on ships, uh, there was very little application of existing regulation and legislation. And indeed, many flag states, uh, by law, um, prevented, disallowed uh, armed guards from being embarked on their vessels. All of that has changed. The maritime security industry is very mature now. It's regulated. Um, there are compliance regimes applied to it. Uh, that doesn't mean that, like any other business, there are not people on the fringes of it who, who are less professional, less legal. Uh, but for the most part, the industry uh, is very well served and provided a service at, at extraordinary value. There, there is nothing to fear from the armed security industry. It, it, it is robust, it's professional, it's mature. So let's move on to corruption then. And uh, Nick, what, what would you say the definition is of maritime corruption? Um, well, it's, uh, it's effectively um, paying somebody to do something that they shouldn't shouldn't be doing. The UN estimate of the cost of corruption to the maritime industry is, is uh, in excess of, of 10%. It's one of the uh, oldest forms of underhand behaviour in, in the maritime industry, uh, and it's uh, prevalent worldwide. When we look at shipping giant Maersk, in their recent uh, sustainability report, they hit out at corruption in the industry by saying that it, shipping was an environment which um, facilitation payments and extortion are commonplace. Why is it that the maritime industry is so accustomed to corruption taking place? Well, we operate two vessels uh, in the Indian Ocean and my personal entry into uh, commercial shipping um, when I left the Royal Marines, I am absolutely staggered at the quantity of regulation that is there in shipping. And uh, it, it is the most regulated industry I've ever come across and with that regulation provides the opportunity for corrupt people to uh, make money and they do it at every opportunity. It is the it is the industry of middlemen, uh, hugely, hugely overregulated in my view. So the answer is rather than more regulation on anti-corruption, it's perhaps streamlining current regulation that's already in place? I'm not sure I, I can support that hypothesis. I think mm. the reality is that shipping industry, the maritime industry, is global. Every country in the world that has some form of coastline is involved in it. Everybody who's got a port is involved in it. And the number of agents, chandlers and middlemen. In some countries, the law is very strong and, and people's adherence to the laws of that nation are incredibly compliant. 
in other nations. It depends how effective the rule of law is. So when we look at the rule of law then, how can we implement effectively things like the Bribery Act in the UK or United Nations Convention Against Corruption? Is it very much down to either the company or the master or national legislation? Um, well, the UK Bribery Act, I guess, is seen as the gold standard of anti-bribery legislation worldwide. Uh, and that applies to any UK citizen, wherever that person happens to be in the world. I guess the challenge is, is about enforcing that. And in the dialogue with, with the British Embassy in Singapore about, about this issue, one, one has an obligation to, to report it. But the, the embassy themselves said, well, we, we don't have the resources to, to deal with that response. Uh, the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, which actually permits small token payments up to the value of 150 US dollars. I think, you know, wherever we're operating in this global industry, uh, as a national citizen, we have an obligation to uphold the bribery legislation of the country that we come from or the country in which we operate. So is the current legislation solely focused on corruption full stop or does it go into specified more details such as money, but then also things like small gifts, cigarettes, whiskey, things which vessels carry? Two years ago we brought a small vessel through the Suez Canal and I, I was on board at the time and the Suez Canal pilot uh, brazenly walked up to the master and asked the master what his gift would be. The master passed him to me because I was the owner and he asked me the same question. And I said, well, what do you mean, what will your gift be? You've only just got on the ship. Uh, and he said, well, I need to know what you're going to give me at the end because I need to know whether I'm going to make trouble for you. I told him to poke it and made it absolutely clear he was going to get absolutely nothing from us whatsoever. And as a consequence, our passage through the Suez Canal took 24 hours longer than it would normally do. Um, we could live with that. If you're a container ship on a tight schedule, you might not be able to. So, Nick, how can we challenge the... If you have an individual which comes from a country where corruption is commonplace and then they work on a vessel which is perhaps owned by British or, or, or Irish owners and they're doing uh, trade loading operations in, in a country where corruption is also rife, when the government officials come on board and they liaise and discuss with the, with the master, how, how can we promote a culture on board which says corruption is wrong despite what perhaps you've grown up with, where you come from or the country that you're in? Yeah, well, it, it starts obviously with a company policy and how that policy is communicated and what tools they you have on board the ship to assist the master. And it's normally the master who has these conversations in, in fighting corruption. With your agency contracts that you have, most of those agency contracts now in responsible companies have anti-corruption clauses. So the local agent is also obliged to uphold the law and support the master in fighting that corrupt activity. Um, the tools that you also have may include notices that may be in the local language uh, that may also cite the local laws. Um, we, I have it, examples in previous companies where the agent has been tasked by the authorities, immigration, customs, uh, the port authorities to go on board with a shopping list and come back with, with the goods as required. Um, so they're almost using a third party to do the shopping for them. We talked about the, the Suez Canal and the Marlborough Channel, as it's called. The Maritime Anti-Corruption Network has been in place since 2011. It now boasts a membership of over 100 member companies, ship owners, ship operators, ship managers. Part of that um, network's activity is, is collective action. Uh, the Suez Canal is an example of where this collective action has worked. And the membership now 
uh, accounts for around 40% of all Suez Canal transits. What the network has done is produced a set of tools for the master uh, in Arabic and in English, and the demands for cigarettes, for bottles of alcohol, are, are diminishing, and no ship operator in the network has um, reported a problem with with saying no. But of course, the demands will continue, and if I can't get my demands met from one ship, then I will go to another ship and make the same demand. What was said earlier about delaying the vessel um, or extending the transit um, or refusing to, to pilot the vessel, this is a very real concern of ship owners. Um, it can result in extensive delays and, and extensive costs, and, uh, and the ship owner is, is obviously uh, concerned that he may be put off hire by a charterer for saying no. Mark, is it as a ship owner, is that something you, you, you agree with? Is it a concern? I, I, I absolutely agree with it. Uh, you know, much like best management practices uh, have helped piracy, I think some best management practices with regard to corruption very helpful. I think the notices in the bridge are, are, are very useful, and uh, you know the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network is is doing extraordinary things in tackling uh, corruption in shipping. To, to make another link, I mean, one of the issues is, of course, uh, corruption by states. Uh, we've talked about how uh, state officials in Nigeria are complicit in some of the activity that happens there, and I, I have to say, my experience with Egypt is the same. Uh, we had an incident uh, two years ago uh, where one of our vessels ran aground on an Egyptian reef. There were three commercial tugs within an hour and we had communications with each of them and uh, we had two of them ready to come to our assistance. We spoke to the Egyptian authorities who told us that under no circumstances could we contract one of those three tugs to come and assist us. Uh, but we had to immediately transfer $27,000 to the Egyptian government for them to provide a naval vessel which was coming from Safaga 24 hours sail away. Unsurprisingly, our vessel was lost in, in the meantime. But nevertheless, we had handed over $27,000 to the Egyptian government. If that isn't corruption, then I want to know what is. Nick, are we perhaps in the UK being uh, slightly naive when we try and deal with corruption in other countries such as Egypt? How, how can we as a UK government or maritime industry deal with such high levels of corruption around the world? Well, I, I think we need to cite some of the successes where, where uh, the, the handshake approach with the, the industry and the collective action of the industry on the one hand and the government authorities on the other hand working systemically together to stamp this out. And Nigeria is an example where that has worked. To get a ship alongside and cleared takes 140 signatures. You can imagine that each one of those signatures requiring some sort of backhander to have the signature on the paper. Um, what has happened in that partnership with the authorities and MACN, the Corruption Network, is providing training to over 400 port officials on anti-corruption. And as a result now, these issues are, are no longer an issue uh, in the container ports. And this is something that has been funded by the UN Development Programme. The issue with, with Egypt is that no such handshake approach has been offered by the Egyptian government. And they're almost sort of closing their eyes and ears to, to the fact that this activity is going on. Uh, and there is simply the effort of, of the co coalition of the willing, if you might call it, um, to take an action against it. You talked about paying, paying to, to get a tug. Um, Douala, Cameroon, uh, the environmental authorities there are, are known to demand $10,000 off you, uh, accusing you of, of discharging sewage into the river. 
we got a ship out by uh, the PNI club putting a bond up, and um, they, they, they never find us in the end. But everywhere you go, you will have issues such as this. So when we look at um, the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network, Liberia's just signed up to it very recently, and the Liberian flag represents 11% of the world's ocean-going fleet. So as a final thought, how can we encourage more countries, or what are the benefits for countries of signing up to the MACN? Well, it's, it, it's about how, how do you enforce it. You know, a flag state, at the end of the day, is a commercial organisation which we, which we accept, but... Uh, the flag state still needs to look after its membership. The flag state itself is not going to create um, change um, on the coal face. It's, it's the vessel owners, it's the vessel operators. Um, the, the flag state may, may be able to promote a reporting mechanism and may be able to then approach um, the government levels. The, the network itself made a presentation in IMO this year and the next facilitation meeting in April, member states are, are invited to put forward the IMO, how those states intend to tackle maritime corruption. Um, so it is an agenda item. Uh, it is up there uh, in, in, as part of the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals. And I think, you know, more participation by the flag states um, can only be a good thing. Mark and Steve, as a final thought, and is there a fear, as particularly with um, piracy as well, that if you whistleblow on corruption at sea, there's a fear that perhaps you could lose your job. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it, it's really an issue of whistleblowing. Uh, corruption, for the most part, in, in shipping is an opportunity that is uh, provided. In, in, in some parts of the world, it has become a part of the establishment. But the bottom line is to fight it. You've got to have the moral courage to stand up to it. And in most cases where there is corruption, the easiest way out is just to go along with it because... If you don't, you either delay your ship and cost yourself even more money or you upset people or, or whatever. But having the moral courage to stand up to it, uh, which is, I know, what the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network is trying to induce across everybody, is the thing. Now, whistleblowing is a crew member having the moral courage to stand up to the captain and say, don't give that pilot those cigarettes. And perhaps if you know they did that, then we would be... Reducing the problem. I, I can't add much more to that. I think what we need to recognise is the world is not homogenous. We talk about the maritime space. Well, actually, the maritime space that where this activity takes place is where the maritime touches the land, and it, and it is a regional issue. Um, and until those regional issues have sufficient pressure placed on them by international bodies, the UN, IMO, then things are not going to change particularly. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, that was great. Thank you for listening to The Shipping Exchange. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, it would be great if you could leave us a comment and subscribe for future episodes. You can also find us across all of social media and at our website, and the links can be found below in the bio. And we hope that you can join us again soon.